Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! Hey church, I'm Katie, my pronouns are she, her, I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church and I'm so happy to see y'all. You know it's really fun when you come up to the front and you get to look out and it's not quite as conspicuous as me just like turning my head around, is that there are a lot more of you here now than there were at like five till five. It's so fun. I'm so glad you're here. If you're joining us from home tonight, thank you so much for whatever it took for you to get situated so that you could be in this worship time with us together. We're really glad you're here. Um, We're in kind of the middle of a worship series for the season of Lent, but the truth is we've been working on the opening chapters of the book of Genesis now for a couple months, right? Because we started right after the Christmas season in the season of Epiphany, starting over again with Genesis 1 and reading the story of our origins um, piece by piece and sometimes overlapping pieces so that we could spend enough time to figure out what these stories actually say. What that means for now is that if you haven't been here like last week or the week before or the week before, I'm so hopeful that what we say and do tonight will make sense. But I'm even more hopeful that it fits together for people who have been here for several Sundays in a row. So y'all can let me know. Um, But we're picking up tonight exactly where we left off at the, uh, let's see, we finished last week, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I'm picking up tonight in verse 8 of chapter 3 in Genesis. And this is kind of the next part of what was left unfinished last week. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me? She gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures, Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. 
he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pangs in childbirth exceedingly great. In pain, you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Dearly beloved, it is good that we gather as a community to join our voices together in worship. And it is also constitutive of our life together that we help each other discover and explore the path of the blessed life God intends for us each and all. So it is no surprise that recently in these very halls, I overheard an earnest and energetic and important conversation between two Aldi's shoppers about the coin holders they keep on their keychains so as to always have a quarter available for their required shopping cart deposit. Which led me to remember my early adult years in Connecticut where the stop and shop required the same deposit for the privilege of unlocking a, not a cart, but a carriage. And all the slushy snow days that I had to trudge back to my car to dig for a coin because I forgot. And the grace-filled occasions when some older, wiser local would take pity on me and give me the quarter from their cart, carriage, to save me the trip. Which led me to remember a not quite provable but still intriguing theory of human behavior, the shopping cart theory. The one that says... A simple test of personal morality is whether, after shopping at the stores that don't require a quarter deposit for the cart, you return the cart to the designated place for collecting carts, or do you leave the cart willy-nilly in the parking lot to become someone else's problem? There's no reward for returning it, see, and there's no punishment for not returning it. So the shopping cart test reveals whether a person is capable of self-governance, doing the objectively right thing in the absence of constraints or incentives. If anyone needs to make their confession after worship, I'll be available. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. 
Or if you prefer to think about morality as a systemic rather than individual calculation, the shopping cart theory says basically that if there were ever a society-wide breakdown of both capitalism to reward our diligence and law and order to punish our transgressions, humanity would be 100% screwed. I mean, just look at the Saturday morning non-Aldi's grocery store parking lot chaos. Abandoned shopping carts strewn across the asphalt like bleached bones in a desert landscape. Collectively, we so quickly revert to every person for themselves in the absence of a reliable system of reward and punishment. Individually, we're just in a hurry. Collectively, we're doomed. Let the shopping cart theory lift us for a minute to an altitude that will help us see something big in our story of origins from Genesis 2 and 3. I'm speaking now of the origination of humanity, not in a scientific way, because that is a discourse for another setting, but in a more existential way, not how we came to be, but how we came to be like this, returning or not returning our shopping carts, thinking about ourselves and how we comport in this very good world God created and sustains and still somehow loves. The human being created in God's image, our story says, has been granted from the very beginning three things by the creator. A vocation, a permission, and a prohibition. We'll take them one at a time. In the first place, the human being has, from the start, a sense of purpose, a caretaking role, a reason to get up in the morning. As a steward of the garden, a tiller and keeper of the soil from which the human is made, there is a God-given reason for being and a way of being in communion with the earth and in working partnership with God and with each other. Further, the story says the humans are meant to make more of themselves, using the garden as a launching pad for life and life and more life. This is their job from the start. Vocation. And the human being, Genesis says, has been granted a permission. You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, God tells the Adam, the human being. Those trees have been created specifically for this, to be lovely to look at and nutritious to eat from, and their fruits are filled with seeds so that they'll never run out. Everything you need, the ground will give you, God says, and you can take as much as you can eat. Permission. But the permission is not unbounded. The human being has been granted a prohibition as well. All the trees, God says to the Adam, except for that one, pointing out a specific tree in the center of it all, 
You know, it's as if God believes that boundaries are a good and necessary part of human development and flourishing. As if learning self-control from the outset is important to our species' survival. As if living together in community requires that we sometimes not do whatever the hell we want. Say, leaving our shopping cart in the parking space next to ours. If God's plan is that the originary humans will populate the earth, forming community with each other, learning boundaries early on will be a help, right? Prohibition. And then comes the day that the human beings, heretofore content to do their daily chores in the gracious garden made of generous permission and protective prohibition, decide to test the boundary. Maybe, they think, maybe this boundary does not benefit me. Maybe it keeps me small and stuck. Maybe there is something more that I could have, something not granted in the permission of all the trees but one. And so they eat, and their eyes are opened, and suddenly everybody knows they're not wearing pants. Last Sunday, we dwelled in that decision to eat the prohibited fruit, imagining this third chapter of Genesis as a coming-of-age story where the plot depends on nothing more than the characters advancing from an idyllic childhood into a turbulent, that is, normal, puberty. It's not a fall. It's not ruination. It's just inevitable reality that people grow and grow up and that growing up necessarily involves heartache. And here we are tonight at the hour of the evening breeze and God is arriving right on time for their nightly stroll through the garden and the human beings are experiencing something altogether new. A couple of things, actually. For the first time, they feel afraid to meet God. They hide, hoping that God's impulse toward relationship is not that strong. But it turns out that's all God wants all the time, again and again. Hey, where are you? God calls, reminding us that the all-knowing, all-seeing God is a later conception of divinity, not always part of the stories our ancestors told. And then, in answer to God's query, there is a new narcissistic impulse on the human's part. Adam says, I heard you. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid. This is not communal or relational, or partnership language. The human being now is weirdly individuated, achingly disconnected, 
The impulse carries through the story as each member of the fledgling species explains further, casting blame anywhere but themselves for their experiment in autonomy. You gave me the woman. She gave me the fruit. I ate. The snake tricked me. I ate. Oh, says God. Oh, I see. Well, this changes everything. And God begins to lay out exactly what that change will mean for each one and for all. The long section of consequences that God lays out in our chapter 3 are sometimes collectively called the curse, as in divine punishment for breaking God's singular commandment, and a punishment that now pertains in all persons and all relationships forever. Some scholars, wanting to make sure we pay attention to what Genesis 3 actually says God says, rather than what we've been told God says, have gotten purchase by noticing that in a literal way, only the snake and the ground are actually specifically cursed. Because you have done this, God says first off to the snake, cursed are you among all animals. And while speaking in a minute to the man, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In between snake and earth, God does not curse the human beings, but describes to the woman and the man the consequences of what has happened. Not necessarily punishment, right? As in our example from last Sunday, if a child touches a hot stove burner, the resulting burn is not a punishment, but a consequence of disobeying the rule. And obviously, a loving parent would run to smear butter on the burn or hold the hand under cold running water and soothe the child who broke the rule, whose hand is hurt as a consequence. This way of reading carefully would ask us to differentiate between the prescriptive and descriptive language in God's speech. So that, for example, when God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, if it's prescriptive, then patriarchy is clearly God's will for all people forever. If it's descriptive, it's a tragic consequence of their boundary transgression, like a badly burned hand. And we can, in good conscience, smash the patriarchy because that was never what God wanted for God's children anyway. I'm just wondering if for tonight we can lift out of the specific language of God's speech and think more generally about what is happening here in God's very good creation. If this is a coming-of-age story about the maturation of the human race as companions to God and each other in this world, if the fruit they ate opened their eyes to the reality of good and evil in the world, a reckoning that comes to us all as we grow up, is it possible that God is here simply giving language to that which we know to be true 
Namely, that everything good, everything beautiful and true and necessary for human flourishing comes at a cost. That indeed, the beauty and goodness of the world can be found most profoundly in the profound expense of love, the costly exchange of sacrifice, and the loss of naivete about the achievement of true human being. Think of this. A child, several times a day, wanders into the kitchen or is called to the dining room table only to find that delicious, nutritious food has magically appeared. Again, they know not how. Perfectly ripe bananas, a fresh loaf of bread, a jug of milk bearing a stamped expiration date that means nothing to the child because for them, the milk is always fresh. They cannot conceive of the labor required to cook the chicken for dinner. They've been warned to never, never, never touch the hot, hot, hot stove much less the emotional labor to remember to put the chicken out to thaw in the morning, or the weekend afternoon spent at the crowded grocery store to buy the chicken, or the hours at a more or less satisfying job to earn the paycheck that affords the chicken, even more distant, the mostly immigrant labor required to raise the chicken, slaughter the chicken, butcher and package the chicken, truck the chicken to the grocery store. There is a world of cost hidden in every magical to the child meal. Those humans, we've been saying, are like children in the magical kitchen In that garden, the human beings have already been given their vocation, their reason for being. They are to cooperate with each other, one helper with another, to populate the earth with people and propagate the plants of the garden. They are to fulfill the gorgeous potential of the garden so that God gets more and more and more of what God wants, more and more beauty, more and more life, more and more love. All good. But now having ingested the naivete-busting wisdom of that stove-hot tree, having grown up at least a little into a clumsy adolescence of embarrassment over their private parts and their disobedience, God says to them, yeah, about that vocation, it turns out the things I've asked you to do are harder than you could understand at first. But now you can. Now you've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let me spell it out for you. About the procreation part, God says to one, "Ah, that's going to hurt, like pushing a cantaloupe through a straw. And your sense of control over the muscles of your very own body will diminish to pretty much zero. And about that food-producing, earth-tending part, God says to the other, also gonna hurt 
and not always going to work. And you'll have surprisingly little control over whether it does or doesn't in any given season. Oh, and now that y'all are so I, 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 I centric, you should probably also know the whole collaborative enterprise was always tenuous. There's power built into the system. See, there has to be for anything to get done. And wherever there's power, there's a tendency for it to accumulate to some over others, to the advantage of a few, to the detriment of all. So you'll always be partners, but you'll always struggle with who's in charge. And that's going to hurt too. So now you know, God says, your eyes have been opened. Welcome to the world. The human being, now reasonably called capital A, Adam, and Eve, so named because of all the cantaloupes that will pass through her straw, sit in stunned silence to contemplate everything they have just learned. God decides to give him some space, finds a comfortable spot a few yards away, bringing out all and lanyard, hide and bone, getting to work on a wardrobe suitable for their almost grown bodies and grown-up work. This is not the retribution of a punishing God to me. Is it you? Isn't this the care of a compassionate parent whose child has burned their hand and needs relief? What stands out to me in this reading of Genesis 3 is that after the discovery of the human's transgression of the boundary around that tree, all the potential of Eden is still operative, far from ruined. Indeed, everything that God has intended from the beginning for God's good creation is still in motion. The proliferation of the human family, the ecosystem that hums with life, the partnership of human beings with each other and with the earth and with God, the day after they eat, Adam and Eve have the same assignment they had the day before. Their vocation has not changed. So the question might be something like, will they enjoy it now as much as they did before when they didn't know how costly, how difficult, how painful it all would be? Or maybe the better question is, is it possible they'll enjoy it more now that they know what love will cost? Will their experience of being human, of human being, be potentially richer, potentially more fulfilling now that they know how much of themselves will be required to make it happen? to fulfill their vocation. I'm asking, will they put the shopping carts back or not? Oh, we're not finishing anything tonight, beloveds. This story is just now getting good. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. 
This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.